The Old Testament reading for today is Isaiah 53. I'm not sure if the, the, the text will be up on the screen today. You might want to open to it. Isaiah 53. The New Testament reading will be Luke 9, 18-22. That is our sermon text. I've been reading devotionally through the book of Isaiah. That is a good book. I tell you what, uh, someday we'll preach through the book of Isaiah here at Emmaus. There's so much gospel in the book of Isaiah, and it is especially true of Isaiah chapter 53. The gospel of Jesus Christ is here revealed beautifully, long before Christ ever came. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. Surely He, and you could probably tell we are speaking of the Christ here, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the, transgress for the transgressors. What a wonderful prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. Let's go now to Luke 9 verses 18 through 22, our sermon text for today. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, 
The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is now the reading of God's holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. All passages of Holy Scripture being divinely inspired are important, but some passages of Scripture may be regarded as especially important and pivotal given what they reveal. I consider Luke 9:18 through 22 to be one of these especially important and pivotal texts. For one reason, or for one rather, the, the question that has been raised in Luke's gospel over and over again is here answered with, with great precision and clarity. You do remember the question, right? It's been asked again and again, and it's been found on the lips of a variety of people. Who is this Jesus? This question has been asked by the scribes and the Pharisees. It's been asked by Jesus' own disciples. Even Herod the Tetrarch has asked this question. And as you know, the crowds were asking this question too. And they had their own opinions concerning Jesus' identity. But here in the text that is open before us today, the question is answered. Jesus asked His disciples, But who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who answered, the Christ of God. And that is the right answer. And it is filled with meaning. The second reason I see this text as being especially important and pivotal is that Jesus here reveals to His disciples what kind of Christ He would be and how He would accomplish our salvation. He would suffer. He would die. He would rise again on the third day. Jesus could not have been more direct and clear about this. After Peter's wonderful profession, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so we will consider this very important and pivotal passage in two parts. Firstly, Peter's answer to the question, Who do you say that I am? Secondly, Jesus' clear declaration concerning His mission. First, Peter's profession. Luke 9.18 says, Now it happened that he was praying alone and the disciples were with him. Luke does not tell us where Jesus and the disciples were. Matthew and Mark include this story in their gospel. You may see Matthew 16.13-16 and Mark 8.27-29. And they say that Jesus and the disciples were in the district of Caesarea Philippi. This region is far to the north of the Sea of Galilee. Luke does not tell us where Jesus was, but he does tell us what Jesus was doing. He was praying. In the previous sermon, it was emphasized that Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the person of the eternal Son or Word of God incarnate. So he is true God and true man. But in this sermon, I wish to emphasize that Jesus is a true man. The Son of God assumed a true human body and a true human soul. This is why we see Him in the Gospel of Luke grow in wisdom and stature. This is why we see Him hunger and thirst. This is why we see Him feel sorrow and angst. And this is why we see Him pray. Jesus was a true man. And as a true man, He communed with God the Father in prayer. He brought His desires to the Father in prayer. He submitted His human will to the Father in prayer. And He was strengthened in prayer, not according to His divine nature, of course, 
but in the human nature he assumed. Jesus prayed, and he taught his disciples to pray. And if we are Jesus' disciples, we, brothers and sisters, should be constant in prayer. After praying, and perhaps he was praying for this conversation that he was about to have with his disciples, he asked his disciples, Who do the crowds say that I am? Who is Jesus? May I propose to you that this is the most important question a person can ask. I don't think that's an overstatement. Who is Jesus? The way that you answer this question has eternal consequences. And people have many opinions, don't they? In the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, the crowds witnessed the signs and wonders that Jesus performed and they developed theories. The disciples of Jesus reported to him that some said he was John the Baptist, others said he was Elijah, others that he was one of the prophets of old that had, that had risen. John the Baptist, we know, was a very powerful figure. He was regarded by many as a prophet. Many followed him, but he was imprisoned and then killed. Some surmised that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Perhaps some thought that John never really died and that this was John. Others thought that Jesus was Elijah. Now, we should remember that the last two verses of the book of Malachi, uh, the last book in our Old Testament scriptures, say, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That is Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Some thought Jesus was this Elijah. In truth, John the Baptist was Elijah, not literally, but he was the Elijah-like prophet whose job it was to prepare the way for the Lord. So the people were mistaken, but it is not difficult to understand why they would think that Jesus was Elijah. Jesus was performing signs and wonders, and this could not be denied by the people. And so the people developed Numerous theories about Jesus' identity. Some said that he was John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others thought that he was one of the Old Testament prophets who had been raised from the dead. One thing that should be clear to us is that the people did hold Jesus in very high esteem. None of these answers to the question, who is Jesus, none of these answers were correct. But it seems that everyone held Jesus in very high regard. The crowds recognized that he was special, that he was unique. They, they recognized that he was in one way or another from God. In Luke 9.20 we read, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And friends, I think it is right for you to hear the voice of Jesus asking you this very question. Who do you say that I am? He spoke to his disciples, of course, but Luke records this exchange for us in this way, I think, to press each one of us with, with this question. Here we have been learning all about Jesus, His birth, His early life. We've learned about the beginning of His earthly ministry, the miracles He performed, the things He taught. And we are being pressed with this question over and over again. Who do you say that I am? I think we are to hear Jesus ask us this very question. As I said a moment ago, this is the most important question a person could ask. And we must get the answer right, for the consequences are eternal. Peter 
answered correctly when he uttered the words, the Christ of God. And not only was this a correct answer, I think this is the best answer. There are other good ways to answer the question, who is Jesus? It would not be wrong to say, Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. That is true, and that is a very important thing to say. Neither would it be wrong to say that Jesus is God's great prophet, the one of whom Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18.15, when he said, The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. So it would not be wrong to say, Jesus is God's great prophet. He is the one of whom Moses spoke. That also is true, and it is important to say. Neither would it be wrong to say that Jesus is the priest of God, the priest who has come in the order of Melchizedek. That too is true and important to say. In fact, Hebrews 5 answers the question, who is Jesus, in this way, and it is good that Hebrews 5 does this. We must see Him as our great high priest. Neither would it be wrong to say that Jesus is the King of God's people. He is the Son that was promised to King David. He is the King of God's kingdom who will reign forever and ever, whose kingdom will have no end. Who is Jesus? Well, He is the eternal Son of Word of God incarnate, the great prophet, priest, and king of God's people. All of this is true. But I've said that Peter's answer was the best answer because the terms he used encompass all of these concepts that I have just mentioned and more. Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The words of God in the phrase, the Christ of God, indicate that Peter knew where Jesus had come from. He had come from God. Now, I'm not sure that Peter had fully grasped the doctrine of the Incarnation at this point in his life. We could debate about that. Obviously, these disciples, they, they grew in their understanding of Christ, His person and work over time. We see evidence of that in all of the Gospels. But Matthew's account of this story helps us to see that Peter understood a lot concerning Jesus' origin. According to Matthew 16.16, Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Matthew gives us more information. Well, first of all, before moving on, what are we to make of the discrepancies between Luke and Matthew? Well, there is no real difference. Matthew reports the longer and fuller answer of Peter Luke's account of what Peter said is more brief and therefore more pointed. Mark's account of Peter's answer is briefer still. Mark 8.29 reads, And Jesus asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. That is Mark 8.29. So Mark wished to stress the word Christ. Luke wished to stress the word Christ and to make it known that Peter knew that Jesus was from God. And Matthew wished to include Peter's words about Jesus being the Son of the living God. It really is Matthew's account that helps us to see that Peter grasped things pretty fully. He knew that Jesus was from God, and more than that, that He was the Son of the living God. The word Christ in the phrase, the Christ of God, is loaded with meaning. Christ is not Jesus' last name. You should know that. It is a very special title. It is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. 
And you could see the word Messiah used in John 1.41 and 4.25. When Peter called Jesus the Christ of God, he meant, you are the Messiah that God has promised and that God has sent. Messiah, or Christ, means anointed. When we use this word, Messiah or Christ, as a title, it means the anointed one. To be anointed is to be covered. And in this context, we are talking about being anointed or covered, or we might say filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Peter confessed that Jesus is the anointed one that God had promised and sent. He was the one anointed by the Spirit of God. I should tell you, if you search your English translations of the Old Testament for the word Messiah, you will not find it unless you are reading from one of the few translations that use the word in Daniel 9, 25, and 26, and Psalm 2, 2, and 28. In the vast majority of cases, the Hebrew word Messiah is translated into English as anointed or anointed one. In the Old Testament, you will find that many people were anointed by God. In particular, the prophets were anointed by God. See 1 Chronicles 16.22. The priests were anointed by God. See Leviticus 6.22. And kings were anointed by God. See 2 Samuel 23.1. And these were anointed by God under the Old Covenant to empower them to fulfill their God-given calling or office. But in the Old Testament Scriptures... You will also find prophecies concerning an anointed one who was to come, a great prophet, priest, and king, a savior, redeemer, and deliverer of God's people. So then the term in the Hebrew, Messiah, is used in the scriptures generically to refer to one who was anointed of God, be it Aaron the priest, David the king, or Nathan the prophet. But it is sometimes used in a much more specific way, to refer to the Anointed One, the Promised One, the Son and the Savior of God's people who was to come, the Messiah, the Christ. Take, for example, Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2, which says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Here is an example of one place where the Old Testament scriptures use the word Messiah or anointed one to refer to a particular person. As the psalm continues, it becomes clear who this anointed one is. He is the King of Kings of verse 6 of Psalm 2. As for me... The Lord says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He is the son of verses 7 through 12 of Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be warned, be wise, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. So then the Anointed One of Psalm 2 is a great King, a King who will have the nations as His heritage, a King who will rule over the whole earth, a King who will judge the nations. 
Psalm 132.17 is also important. It speaks of Jerusalem when it says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. And so here is another place where the term Messiah or anointed one is used to refer to a particular person. David's son will be the anointed one. Perhaps the most famous Old Testament prophecy regarding the coming of the Anointed One is Daniel 9.25-26. Let me read it to you now. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an Anointed One, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. For the sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an Anointed One shall be cut off and shall have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, this is kind of a difficult text. There are multiple interpretations of this that we will not get into now. But most Christians agree that the anointed one of verse 26 who is said to be cut off is Jesus the Messiah. He is the one who was cut off. This being a reference to His crucifixion, His death on the cross. Now, I've cited these passages because they all use the term Messiah in a very focused and particular way to refer to the Anointed One, a King, a Redeemer who was to come. But I think it is also important to see that all of the anointed prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Covenant did foreshadow the Messiah and lead God's people to live with a sense of anticipation concerning His arrival. There were many anointed prophets like Moses, but there was a great anointed prophet who would one day come. And Moses did speak of him in a particular way, saying, there's going to be one who arises after me. Listen to him. And there were many anointed priests who descended from Aaron, but there was a great anointed high priest who would one day come in the order of Melchizedek. The Psalms are clear about this. And there were many anointed kings who descended from David. But there would one day arise the anointed king, the anointed one of Psalm 2, who would sit on David's throne and rule forever and ever. The point that I am here making, it should be clear, I think, is that this term Messiah does not have to be used for the concept of Messiah to be present. When we take it into consideration, the texts that explicitly speak of a coming Messiah and all of the texts that treat the anointed prophets, priests, and kings of the old order in a typological way, it it is not at all surprising that the people of God were living with a sense of anticipation concerning the soon arrival of the Messiah in the days that Jesus was born. I did not state that very well, but I think you are able to track along with me. When we really consider the Old Testament scriptures and all of the anointed ones present there and the way that they foreshadow Christ and the passages that speak of an, an anointed one, who is to come, we begin to see that yes, there was this great anticipation, maybe prompted especially by the Daniel 9, 25-26 passage that I just read a moment ago. There was this great anticipation amongst the people living in the days of John the Baptist and Jesus. They were awaiting the arrival of the Messiah or the Christ. As you know, the word Messiah or the Greek equivalent Christ is used very frequently in the New Testament And the New Testament emphatically teaches that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus who was born to to the Virgin Mary, He is the Christ, 
or Messiah who was promised from long ago. Peter knew it. He wasn't the only one who knew it. I think it is right to assume that Peter spoke on behalf of the other disciples as well. Remember, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you all say that I am? Peter spoke up because, one, his conviction was strong and sure, but I do hear him speaking as a leader on behalf of the others too. In fact, we should remember John 141. There in that text, we learn that Peter was not the first disciple to be called. There were two called before him. One was his brother, Andrew. And Andrew, after responding to the call of Jesus to follow him, the text says, He found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah. And then John adds, so that we are not confused, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So before Peter was convicted and convinced that this Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah, Andrew was convicted and convinced of it. And Andrew went and got Peter and brought him to the Lord. And the rest is history, we might say. So I hope you can see how pivotal this moment was in the ministry of Jesus and the life of His apostles. This was a pivotal moment. He had called these twelve to Himself, and He had began to walk with them, and to teach them, and to perform miraculous signs before them. Uh, rumors are spreading about Jesus' identity amongst the, the crowds, amongst the people. But they come to this point where Jesus looks at them and says, But who do you say that I am? What do you say? Now that you have seen these signs, now that you have heard my words, what is your conviction? State it now. And Peter, on behalf of the apostolic band, as a leader of it, says, You are the Christ of God. So this is a pivotal moment in the life of the disciples of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. It is also a very pivotal moment in Luke's Gospel, I think. Here, Jesus is clearly stated to be the Christ of God. The question that has been brought up over and over again has now been answered, and then we move forward with this clarity through the remainder of Luke's Gospel. There is something else pivotal about this passage that we are considering today, and I'd like to touch upon it very briefly with you before concluding. In our passage, we hear Peter profess that Jesus is the Christ of God, and then we hear Jesus clarify that as the Christ, He would have to suffer. As the Christ, He would have to suffer. You and I are accustomed to thinking and talking about the sufferings of Christ for the simple reason that we live a long time after His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so it is not very hard for us to think about Christ as one who suffered as one who was rejected, as one who was crucified. But this was a difficult concept for those who lived prior to Jesus' death and resurrection to grasp. And this included the disciples of Jesus. Many, as I have already said, given all that the Old Testament says about Messiah, were looking for the arrival of the Messiah, but most assumed He would be a powerful, victorious King. Few understood that his power and victory would be won through suffering and death. But it's not as if Jesus was unclear about this in his ministry. Look with me at verse 21 of Luke 9. 
And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. This sounds strange to us who lived so long after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. For we have been commissioned to go and tell the whole world about Jesus, right? But there was a time in the earlier part of Jesus' ministry when he discouraged his followers from spreading the word about him too freely. Again, I say it sounds strange to us, but here Jesus' earthly ministry is progressing at a certain rate and He is preparing to go to Jerusalem and to die. And so He sometimes restrains His disciples from spreading the word about Him, from spreading the word that He is the Christ of God. Quoting again Luke 9.21, He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The sufferings of Jesus were hinted at in Luke's Gospel when that old man Simeon rejoiced to see the baby Jesus in the temple and blessed Joseph and Mary, and then spoke to Mary, saying, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for, the, for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Uh, Simeon's uh, words here uh, are ominous. Mary, your heart is going to be broken. It hints at suffering. It hints at tragedy. It hints at difficulty. But up to this point, not much has been said about the sufferings of Jesus in Luke's Gospel. Here, in the moment His disciples confess Him to be the Christ of God, in that very moment, Jesus makes it crystal clear that He will be a Christ who suffers. He will be a King who conquers by laying down His life as a sacrifice for many. Jesus mentions His suffering for the first time here in Luke 9.22. The theme of His suffering will appear regularly in Luke's Gospel from this point forward. Oftentimes it is emphasized that His disciples could not comprehend what He was saying. As I have said already, He could not be more clear. He could not be more direct. He wasn't speaking in some you know, kind of hidden, uh, mystical way. He says it directly, but His disciples could not comprehend what He was saying. It's as if they had a place in their minds for a Messiah, but they did not have a mental category for a suffering Messiah. And so these clear words of Jesus just kind of bounced right off of them. Listen to Luke 9:44 through 45. Here Jesus speaks to his disciples saying, "Let these words sink into your ears. The son of man, this was a favorite title for himself, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men." But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. So even the Lord kept this from them, the ability to comprehend it, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask Him anything about it. Can you picture Jesus gathering His disciples? I'm going to say it to you again. Let this sink into your ears. I'm even going to say it slowly, so that you might comprehend it. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Don't forget what I said to you not long ago. The Son of Man is going to be delivered, and He is going to be uh, he, he is going to be rejected and, and crucified and on the third day rise again. He says it over and over again. In Luke 17, Jesus speaks about the time of the end when He will return to judge and to make all things new. But in 17.25 He says, But first, 
The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So I will one day come in glory. Yes. But first, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In Luke 18.31 we read, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him, and on the third day He will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. In Luke 22.15, we hear Christ speak to His disciples, saying, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I'm about to suffer. And then finally, in Luke 24, Jesus speaks to His disciples after His suffering, His death, His burial, and resurrection. Remember, He appeared to His disciples after His resurrection for 40 days. And in verse 26 of Luke 24, we read, Jesus say, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? In verse 46 of the same chapter, we hear Jesus say, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Do you see the theme, brothers and sisters? First, Christ reveals Himself to be the Messiah through His words and through His miraculous deeds. Peter confesses it to be so, a pivotal moment in Luke's Gospel. But in the moment that this confession is made, this profession is made, rather, what does Jesus do? He brings this clarity. I'm going to be a suffering Messiah, one who lays down His life, one who wins the victory through death. Friends, Peter and the rest of the disciples were right to confess that Jesus is the Christ of God. But they had a lot to learn about Him For one, they had to learn what it would mean to have a Christ who would redeem them and lead them by undergoing suffering, rejection, betrayal, and even death. It would be through suffering and death that the Messiah would be raised to glory. At this point in their lives, they were simply unable to comprehend it. They did not have a category for it. But they would comprehend it after seeing the crucified and risen Lord. So I have said this is an important text, a very pivotal text. I hope you would agree with me about that. I have three very brief questions to ask you by way of conclusion. Firstly, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you regard Him to be just another man? Do you regard Him perhaps to be a great teacher? Uh, Perhaps you would go further than this. Maybe you regard him to be a great man, one like John the Baptist, Elisha, or one of the prophets of old. None of these things are quite true. The answer that we should give is that Jesus is the Christ of God. And as we make this profession, we must understand what it means. And to understand what it means to the Old Testament, we must go. I pray that you would confess Jesus to be the Christ of God, more than this, I pray that you would trust in Him, that you would have Him as your Lord and as your Savior. And if you answer the question, who is Jesus correctly saying the Christ of God, I must ask you, do you see Him as your suffering servant? There's a reason I read from Isaiah 53 at the beginning of this sermon. 
that is a marvelous passage that speaks of the coming Messiah, though the term is not used, the concept is there. But what is emphasized by Isaiah chapter 53, except that this, this coming one, this coming Savior, is going to be one who is rejected, who is betrayed, who is going to be badly treat, treated, who suffers and even dies in the place of others. Do you know Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed prophet, priest, and king of God's people, who has entered into glory and accomplished our salvation through suffering and death? And do you love Him all the more for it? We must look at Christ and see that He is our suffering servant. He has won the victory, not as typical kings do, not in a glorious way, but He has won the victory for us by laying His life down for us. Our love for Christ should be very great as we contemplate the sufferings He endured in order to reconcile us to God. Thirdly, if you know that Jesus is the Christ, and if you love and adore Him as the one who suffered, died, and rose again for you, and in your place, I must ask, are you willing to suffer as a disciple of His? Are you willing to suffer as a disciple of His? The day will come where Christ returns in glory, and then God's people will no longer suffer. They will no longer experience trials and tribulations in this world. All that is evil will be be banished from Christ's domain. We long for that day, but until then, Christ's people will undergo trials and tribulations of various kinds. God's people will suffer in this world. There will be conflict in this world. The kingdom of Christ in this present evil age will suffer violence. And so Christ has called us to suffer as His people. I want you to notice very briefly that this is what Christ calls His disciples to do in the passage that follows. Luke 9.23, we will come to it next Sunday, Lord willing. And He said to to all, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake We'll save it. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we consider your plan of salvation that Christ has accomplished, we marvel at how infinitely wise, how abundantly gracious, merciful, and kind you have been to provide us with a Savior, Christ the Lord. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his active obedience, that he obeyed you in our place. We thank you especially for his passive obedience, that he suffered in our place. Even the awful pains of death on the cross. As we look upon Christ and as we contemplate the cross, we see what our sins deserve. And we are grateful that you have provided a substitute for us, Christ Jesus the Lord. For those who do not yet trust in him, Draw them, I pray, by your word and by your spirit. For those who do trust in him, for those who have him as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would strengthen their faith, increase their love, O God. And do go with us, O Lord, that we would cling to Christ tightly, that we would honor him and obey him always, even being willing to undergo suffering for his namesake. Lord, strengthen us, and we do remember even in this time those who live in places on earth today where the church is fiercely persecuted. Strengthen them, 
I pray that we all together would indeed take up our cross and follow after Christ Jesus the Lord, who bore the cross for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.